You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Welcome. It's good to have you here today. We are in our eighth week of this series called Justified, how God mends broken lives, broken people, and a broken world. And I'm excited to be here with you today as we continue this series. Um, We're probably at one of the hardest chapters in the entire book of Romans today, and some people would probably have rather Paul just skipped it, you know, just moved from Romans 6 to Romans 8 move on and not deal with some of the realities that we find in Romans 7. But I'm glad he didn't because my life does reflect a bit of what's going on in this chapter, and I think yours will too. There, it's a terrifying little story by um, the author Robert Louis Stevenson. He's written a number of books, but one of them is entitled Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Never. Never heard of it. <laughs> what? Bugs Bunny even did something on it, didn't he? Do you remember that? That's the one. That's why I know it, sort of. I've never read it myself, but um, let me tell you, the story is that Dr. Jekyll is kind of this wonderfully nice, poised doctor who has this good side, but he has a darker side underneath impulses, and he has discovered a way through a potion of some type to transform himself periodically to get rid of those bad impulses and let that Mr. Hyde kind of reign free. But the problem in that book is that after a while, the experiment goes south and Mr. Hyde keeps coming out even when he hasn't taken the potion and Mr. Hyde takes over and becomes who he is at the end of the story. But in it, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, confesses this. He says, with every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth by whose partial discovery I've been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. Hmm. Okay. Now, why I bring this science fiction story up is because actually Robert Louis Stevenson was a Christian. He was raised in, I believe, a strict Presbyterian home. And there is some truth in this that Paul himself would even admit that man, humanity, is not merely one, but two. And we've got both going on at the same time. We're both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, I think I had a discussion with Hugo one time about physics. Is light... A particle or a wave? Have you ever heard that? And the answer actually in physics is yes. (laughs) Okay, both, right? In theology, in the Christian world of theology, are we sinners or are we saints? And the answer is yes. Are we defeated or are we victorious? Again, the answer is yes. Are we in bondage to sin? Or are we freed from sin? And the answer, paradoxically, is yes. Now, Robert Louis Stevenson only talks about half the truth in this book because he ends the book with Mr. Hyde taking over, that that became Dr. Jekyll's true identity. The good news we have this morning is that in Romans 7, in the midst of conflict, Paul doesn't end us 
with the feeling like, oh my goodness, well, it's up for grabs. Which one of these two human beings you're going to become? We're not quite sure. They're both equally as powerful or they're both conflicted and who knows how you... Paul ends with the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. So he will contrast in the book of Romans this inner conflict we have and then also the eventual victory one day that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are truly saved by grace. And that is still true no matter the conflict that you have in your life. So we're going to read two different sections of Romans 7. And I know it's a very subtle difference in the English, but I want you to recognize in the first section, it's all in the past tense. And in the second uh, section that we're going to read, it's all in the present tense. And I think That's what we're going to look at, the two different conflicts that we have faced, the one in the past that we could not win, and the one in the present that we cannot lose because of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Romans 7, verses 7 to 12 to start with. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. What if... Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would never have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Notice past tense. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Past tense. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Past tense. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then Romans 7, 21 to 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, present tense, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind in present tense and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So from these two parts of Romans 7, you could read the whole chapter sometime. It's worth, the, re- the whole book is worth reading, okay? Um, but um, we're going to learn these two points today. Only two. Are you happy it's only two? <laughs> yes, it might be short. might not, okay? Depends how much back talk I get, okay? No, it's okay. I love it. I love it when it happens, Hugo. Okay, and these are the two points. The battle you could not win. And secondly, the battle you cannot lose. Okay. Now, the difference between those two points, like I said, is going to be this. And that is that word again, that we are justified. That we are justified. That we have had a change take place. The gospel of Jesus Christ has put us to death and raised us to a new life. And we do have that new life with us, even in the midst of our battles. So let's look, first of all, at the battle you could not win, past tense. And this comes up, especially in Romans 7, 9 to 11, where Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. 
But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, what is this all talking about? And boy, let me tell you, when you read up on this, you can read historically through different interpretations by the Christian church, different theologians and uh, church leaders over time, or you can read contemporary commentaries on this, and you'll find there are a variety of understandings of this, and there's quite a bit of controversy, exactly what Paul's all talking about. So some people will say this is Paul's personal example of how he faced in life. Some think, though, that Paul is talking about the first human being, Adam, and how he was alive apart from the law, and then died, because Adam comes up in Romans chapter 5. Others think that Paul is talking about all of Israel, and then when they came under the law at Mount Sinai, that's when things went south, in a sense. And then still others think that this is just not a historical example, but an existential example about all human beings, and how when we face the law, what happens? So which one is it? And I answer, yes. <laughs> I think it could be all of them. It's really hard to pull them apart. I think what Paul is actually saying is, yes, this is what happened to Adam. This is what happened to me in my life. This is what happened to Israel. And this is what happens to you. This is how we've been. With the law and the law alone, we're lost. It's a battle we can't win. Like I said, the verbs here are all in the past. So he's saying this is what it was like. You know, now here's the reality too that I've just been kind of amazed at over my time as a pastor. And maybe you are too in some ways and you've seen this in your lives. I've been amazed at how shallow some people understand God's commandment. So what I mean by that is they can kind of treat it like a checkbox. Check, check, check. They can go through the Ten Commandments and say, well, you know, I believe in God. So, chink, I don't have any other gods before God. Bing, because I believe in a God. Boom. And then the second one, um, you know, like, don't make images of God or the uh, uh, don't, uh, don't uh, use God's name in vain. Well, I don't swear too much. Ding. Check that one off. Right? Or um, remember the Sabbath. Well, I, you know, I, I rest. I take my Sabbath. Boom. And they kind of treat it as like a, a list of little checks of things that they can do. Don't murder. Bing. I'm no mafia don. No problem. Right? That's what I say. Hey, you see where I live with the car I drive. If I'm a mafia don, I would think I would be, you know. Oh, so it's, yeah, see, I've got it stashed away in some. Boy, they're learning my secrets. The Mr. Hyde underneath is coming out. Yeah, no. Um, but a kind of a shallow understanding of the law. And um, you, you, you basically, with that kind of shallow understanding, um, can kind of feel like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm righteous, or at least righteous enough. The last few years, um, I've had the opportunity to, uh, to sit down and uh, interview and talk with, for my class, Contemporary World Religions, some ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbis who are wearing the, you know, have the phylactery, have the, have the little four, uh, four tassels on the garment, the, the, the earlocks 
um, not the dreadlocks, but the earlocks. <laughs> they could have the dreadlocks too, I guess, but uh, the earlock, you know, they're keeping the law. 613 little commandments that they find in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and it's like they feel like they're doing a good job. And I'm just kind of amazed that anyone can look at the Ten Commandments, let alone the 613, all these things, and go like, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm keeping it. But they do. They do. Um, and I think what happened, Paul was in that same category. I don't know if you realize this, but he thought he was zealous. You can read this, especially in Philippians chapter 3, that he was zealous for the law, that as far as the law goes, in human eyes at least, he was as perfect as you could get. But then, he only knew the law from the outside at that point, I think. But then the law really came and kind of came in with both feet. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized something about the law that he hadn't before. It's not just these little check boxes you can, but it's the whole intent. It's the whole purpose. It's the whole life. God doesn't grade on some type of a curve, you know, and as long as you're in the 10th percentile at the top, you're okay. The law is complete and full. You, if you keep all of it completely, you're fine. But if you break any of it, you've broken the law, or better yet, you're broken against the law. So Paul in Romans 7 is kind of saying this. I was alive until I realized what the commandments were really about. When I understood the fullness of that commandment, it condemned me and killed me on the spot. Now, what's fascinating, too, if you read through Romans 7, like that first section, which of the Ten Commandments does he pick? He picks the last one, thou shalt not covet, as the example. Why does he do that? Why coveting? Why coveting? And I was kind of working through that a little. It's rather fascinating of all the commandments because the other ones are kind of external. You can tell if somebody is keeping the Sabbath day holy. You can tell if somebody is not bearing false witness against their neighbor. You can kind of tell if somebody's stolen or not stolen, right? External. But when you come to coveting, coveting it has that insidious quality of it's your desires. Because coveting, it, we don't, do we use the word covet today? Not too much. So what is it? Covet is not just wanting stuff. It's wanting stuff inordinately above everything else. In fact, wanting it more than God, Okay. Wanting it more than God. We're going to get to that slide in a minute. Sorry, you're a little ahead of me. You're trying to make this sermon shorter, aren't you? Yeah, nudging me along. Okay, we'll get there. Sin as coveting, all of a sudden Paul realizes it's not just an external standard you can check off. It's the internal heart issue. Coveting is, in a sense, the essence of all sin. It's really what happened when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and they wanted, it wasn't that they wanted this forbidden fruit off of one tree. It's the fact that they wanted the, what God had in himself, his righteousness, his ability to know good and evil, his autonomy. They wanted God's stuff, his attributes. They didn't want God. That's always been the problem. I want your stuff, God. I just don't want you around. That's coveting. 
It's coveting is not being content. Coveting is that black hole of desire in our lives. You can get more and more and more, and it's still never enough, whether it's money or beauty or success or status, or in Paul's case, if it's his own personal righteousness. Here's what's amazing. On the road to Damascus, Paul realized that the heart of his religiosity, the heart of his zeal, the center of everything that he was doing up to that point was just coveting, spiritual coveting, wanting righteousness, wanting his own sense of status before God and the law without wanting God. I want your stuff, God, specifically your attribute of righteousness. I just want it on my own terms in my own way. And that's when the law finally hit him. Now, you're hearing it maybe from a pastor, which is kind of unusual, but religion is spiritual coveting. Okay? It's a form of sin. It is a form of sin. It is basically wanting God's stuff without wanting God. Let that sink in for a moment. Paul was such a spiritual coveter of wanting that zealousness that it made him actually cruel. Religion can be a real problem in this world. I don't know if you've noticed that. (laughs) A lot of conflicts in this world, a lot of self-righteousness in this world, a lot of force and power in this world. But what's really behind it is a sinful attitude of Mr. Hyde Wrapped in Dr. Jekyll, he looks good on the outside, but inside it's this desire to be in charge and be on top and have it my own way and to use God to get it. That's the battle you can't win. That's the battle you've already lost. Past tense, it's over, Paul says. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the law came in, the commandment came in, sin came in, sin came alive, and I died. The only thing the law will ever evoke in you is more self-righteousness. Never do anything else. Um, You kind of know this in one form or another. You know when the law comes in, it actually brings out more defiance, more Uh, trying to grab things for myself. Uh, You just take a five-year-old. Right now, Johnny's a little young for this, but in a few more years, when Johnny is about five, you tell him near his birthday, which is coming up, Johnny, don't go into our bedroom and look under the bed. And what have you guaranteed to happen now? Exactly, right? Exactly. That's what the law does. The law comes in and says, thou shalt not. And then all of a sudden it's like, who, who are you to tell me what to do? That great American trait we see all over the place right now. Who are you to tell me what to do? I want to live my life in my own way. You don't understand that is just whether it's some human being or whether it's God, it's still kind of that same attitude. And Paul says, that's Mr. Hyde. 
Even in spiritual terms, it's Mr. Hyde. No matter how you wrap and how nice it looks, it's Mr. Hyde. And the law will kill you. Paul doesn't end the chapter there, though I think Robert Louis Stevenson kind of ends the book with that reality of that we are two, not just one. And he ends the book with the reality that Mr. Hyde's going to take over. Praise God. Paul realizes we are conflicted. We have this battle going on. We've lost that. But he goes on to talk in the present tense of the battle we're still in the middle of, but the battle that we cannot lose. The second battle is different. And we find this especially in verses 22 and 23 of Romans 7. He says, For in the present tense, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Hmm. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is what God has accomplished by his Holy Spirit, that you now have a new identity. And we'll get into that in just a minute, when that happened, where that happened, how that happened. But it doesn't come to you naturally. It comes to you supernaturally. And you still have these two natures going on. But God's rule in your life, what God has accomplished through his grace, through the gospel, has now given you a new nature that in your inner being you actually delight in God's will. It's not something that you just say, who are you to tell me what to do? I want it my way. In my inner being, the real me, the real me. You know, Paul only uses that other phrase, in my inner being, in one other place in the scriptures, and I don't have this on a slide, but it's 2 Corinthians 4.16, where he says, don't, therefore we do not lose heart, the, though outwardly we are wasting away. Let me tell you, the wrinkles are coming, the hair is falling out. You know, outwardly, um, my body is not quite what it used to be, but yet inwardly, that is, in my inner being, We are being renewed day by day. Praise God for that. That's the new you. And that new you is who you really are. You're not Mr. Hyde anymore. And you might say to me, wait a minute, John. (laughs) Man, I still have huge struggles and conflicts in my life. We all do. You still have a sinful nature. But it's no longer your true identity because of what God has done. Like Mr. Hyde, yes, but it's mortally wounded. It's the beast that has lost, and it will inevitably die. And how did this all happen? Well, Paul says this in Romans 7, 4, a verse we didn't look at. He said, you have died. That is the reality. You have died. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. You have died in Christ. The old world, the old self are passing away. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You belong to Jesus Christ, period. Is, uh, is somebody outside? Uh, the door is locked. There are some people that are trying to get in. Bill's there. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> is he there? Because he's still not opening the door. <laughs> okay. 
All right, sorry about that interruption. But if that's the case, why do we still struggle with these desires? I'll tell you this too. Your desires, your struggle might be even more intense now as a Christian than before. Okay? It may be even stronger now. And what I have seen over the years, and maybe you've seen it too, too many Christians want to just finally give in. They're just tired of the battle. They're tired of the struggle. They're tired of this conflict that's going on inside of us. Too many Christians I've known have just kind of given into the tension. This inner conflict between the desire to do God's will and the reality that the members of their body, as Paul puts it, (laughs) are fighting against it. They give up and they kind of go like, oh, well, it's not really that bad. It's not really sin. And they kind of try to change God's law in order to make them feel okay and justified. But you are in a battle you cannot lose. You are in a battle you cannot lose. And here's the reality. This is the one beautiful thing about it. Because the struggle itself, that you are still struggling against those impulses in your life, that is the victory. That you are struggling with your sinful self is the victory, Paul says. That you have that inner struggle going on, you are still in that victory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also once said, only a suffering God can help. And so Jesus suffered for you. He went through the same struggle you did. He's the one who upon the cross really cried out these words that Paul said in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the victory took place because Jesus Christ did not just become sinful at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 says he became sin. He took on sin. He was not rescued in this body of death upon the cross, but he died that death. And in him you died there too, so that you would have a new life in him through the resurrection. And the mature Christian is not one who gives up on the struggle throughout life. The mature Christian, no matter the age, knows it keeps going until the day that we will be transformed. The mature Christian will keep seeing the profoundness of their own sinfulness at the same time claiming and holding on to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we are simultaneously both that sinner and saint, that we struggle with sin, but we have the victory over sin, that we are Mr. Hyde, but that is fading away, and the new life is coming. As you believe in the great substitution that Jesus Christ has given you, as you believe in what God has done by your spirit, that the old is dying, the new is coming, That new relationship with God is yours. You in a battle that you cannot lose because you've been united with Jesus Christ. Now, the original letter of the Romans, um, you know, when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't have chapters and verses, you know? I mean, those were added actually sometime in the Middle Ages. We're not quite sure by whom. And some have kind of jokes about how that happened. One is that some monk on some donkey was 
you know, going along. And whenever the donkey kind of bucked a little, he put a chapter, a change in or whatever. Because some of them don't make sense. You know, they split sentences. There's a number of problems. I think it's a little of a disservice that Romans 7 and 8 are two separate chapters. Because actually what we've found is there are four hinge verses, four verses with these therefores we've talked about that kind of are like the hinges for a door swinging open in this letter. And we come to the third one today when we hit Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And what this hinge verse does is it concludes everything we just talked about in Romans 7. And you know what's great about that? Is that Paul himself had this struggle. Paul was conflicted his whole life. Paul was the one who couldn't quite figure it out, who didn't like the fact. Paul is the one who even cries out, wretched man that I am. And if Paul cries that out, hey, there's some comfort in that, that yes, I still have this struggle. That's going on. And yet, Paul still asserts most profoundly that there is now no condemnation. Even with this struggle that's going on in your life, there is no condemnation for you are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's why I can say this is a battle you will not lose. Hold on. Trust in him. Keep growing. Understanding more and more, yes, I've got that conflict. I'm not over it. I'm like every other human being. There's not just one of me. There's two of me fighting inside. And yet, I know for sure, because of Jesus, the victory is ours. Ultimately, we will be that new creation fully and completely freed from the old nature. He is justifying us. We are justified and he is mending our lives and he will mend this world. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a tough subject. And though it'd be easier to (laughs) to just move on, Uh, and skip over the reality of our own struggles in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for Paul's example, for uh, whether it's Adam or Israel or Paul or us, that we all face this conflict. And yet, Lord, though we lost the battle without you under the law, we will win the battle with you because of the gospel. That good news There is now no condemnation for us, even in the midst of this struggle, Lord God. I pray, Lord, now too. There are many people struggling in our world. They haven't understood why bad things are happening and why maybe they're facing it. We pray, Lord, that we can come alongside of them and show you, show them your love, your mercy, and your grace. Help us at Thrive to be there, to understand for those who are facing even the deep, deep struggles of addiction, deep struggles of of guilt and, and, and depression, Lord, we pray that we can be there with them through those battles just because you've been through those things with them. You are there with them. You have not forsaken them. Lord, let them hold on to you, trust in your gospel and in your word. We pray, Lord God, as well, for those who are struggling with physical ailments, with the body kind of breaking down, 
you know, even though their inner spirit is being renewed. We lift up to you, especially today, Andrea Blankenship, who is, again, hospitalized. And we pray, Lord God, that through this clinical trial, through the treatments right now she's receiving at Lee, Lee Health, that you would do your miraculous work in her, that she would glorify you and that you would have the victory in this. And we pray, Lord, for a miracle. We pray for what only you can do that goes beyond the doctors and oncologists and technicians and everyone else. We lift up to you, Vern, O Lord, and his health issues. We lift up to you, uh, Christopher, um, the grandson of the Griskies. We lift up to you, Lord God, um, little Kai, the grandson of the Llewellyns. And we pray for your healing there in the battle with their cancers as well. We lift up to you, O Lord, in this community, those who are facing unemployment and uh, uncertainty. We ask, O Lord, that you would provide that you would use us through things like our food drives, that you would use us as just being good neighbors to those around us, Lord, in a variety of ways, that you get the glory and they understand your love and mercy more deeply. We pray that um, everything that's going on right now, you would be using for the sake of your kingdom's growth in this world. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately we have the victory and that we are yours. Lord God, prepare us. Prepare us to see our own weaknesses, but your strength. Prepare us to see our own uh, sinfulness, but your righteousness. Prepare us, O Lord, to trust you implicitly and know because of you, Lord Jesus, we have the victory. And prepare us as we come in a few moments to the Lord's Supper that you would visit us with everything that you want for us, that you'd grant us your presence, your fullness, that we would be open to it, that we would receive it and it would do um, a deep and abiding work in us. So bless us now, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all who are watching online at this time, for all in their needs. We lift them up. We don't know them, but you do, Lord. We commend ourselves and everyone for whom we pray, trusting in your mercy, confident of your promises in Jesus our Savior. Amen.